0: Well, but that didn't happen to I me. Mean, Olivia was that way before I got it. No. Oh, anyway. Before you got up that other time. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, we're going through church history. We're finishing off the Age of Enlightenment and talking about things that people are finding intolerable. And we're going to end off with that. But, as we talked about last week, uh, we ended off with talking about Mozart, right? So Mozart is, is writing his first opera in 1770. That same year... The Turk played its first game of chess. Anybody ever hear of the, the Turk? Turk? The Turk. Okay. The Turk was a robot that, and, and yes, they actually had automata back then, but it was a robot that actually played chess against people, and usually won. It was. A, we think of this as a modern sort of thing, like Big Blue, the, uh, the, the, the chess-playing computer. You go, nope. This is 1770, this thing is beating people in chess. In fact, 1809, it beat Napoleon in chess. He was not a happy little guy. Actually, Napoleon wasn't that short. That's one of the things. Anyway, Napoleon was not a happy guy to get beaten by a clockwork automaton. But that's what they were doing back then. They made good stuff. They made all sorts of, they they had all these gears and wires and all this kind of stuff. They made all sorts of automata back then. They were hugely popular at the time. they look better than the robots we have today? Actually, they do. Um, In fact, uh, 1795, I was just reading this not too long ago, a pair of human-sized dancing automata were the hit in Philadelphia. Everybody was watching these automata in, in Philadelphia and writing about how awesome they were. The Pardon me? The Doctor Who episode. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Point is that in the 1700s... Well, I should, I should probably comment. There's a Doctor Who episode where these, there are these aliens that are like robots, but they're all clockwork robots, and they're in the 1700s. There's a reason why the Doctor Who episode did it that way, because it was really big back then. At that time in history. Isn't it? Thing is, the Turk was, an automa- was not a piece of clockwork auto- automation. It was the most popular piece of clockwork auto- automation at the time, and it wasn't one. It was this beautifully made thingy, I'll tell you. Yeah, it was a, a wonder of engineering, and if you open up one side of it, you could see all the gears and it had these spindles with all sorts of little knobs on it and stuff so you so it would tell it what to do and all these all these coiled springs and stuff. But on the other side it had a guy that plays chess. Oh. It wasn't technically a robot that was making any kind of decisions. It was just a guy playing chess manipulating the arms of a fake robot. A little magician. Yeah yeah it's total oh, wow. smoke and mirrors but nobody knew that. I mean, for, Napoleon got beat by a commoner. Yes! And he had no... Well, he wouldn't have minded the commoner part. Napoleon got beat by a guy. Napoleon was not nobility. But it was impressive in that it has... It had magnets on it, and, and, and it, it had the magnets set up in such a way that even other people would set, like, large magnets next to it going, I think it's using magnets, and it wouldn't interfere with the actual magnets that it was using. And so they were like, oh, go ahead, put magnets next to it. That's not it. It's the Turk. He's playing you. It's like, nope. So, it had these magnets that would show the guy down here what pieces were being moved and to what squares. And he had his own little chessboard down there, and he would see what it's doing. And, and also it also had great mechanisms to move the hands. In fact, Napoleon kept cheating. He kept moving pieces ways that they didn't move, and then the Turk would move the piece back to where it <laughs> would belong. And, and, and he, he only got marginally upset because how angry can you get with a machine, right? <laughs> I love it! I love it! So this was this was hysterically funny when, when, when you look at it historically, and it was famous for 85 years it was famous. In fact, if I remember correctly, the only person that found out what it was, I think it was Friedrich. I think Friedrich the Great um, paid a ton of money <laughs> and said, "I will give you a ton of money if you show me how this thing actually works." And they said, okay, but you've got to sign a non-disclosure agreement." Mm-hmm we will show you, but you cannot tell anybody. And so he swore before the Lord that he wouldn't tell anybody. And they showed him, and uh, all he ever said was, it was disappointing. (laughs) All all he ever said. But he didn't disclose it. So for almost a hundred years, until the thing finally got destroyed in a fire, this thing was like the the marvel of science. Everybody's saying, ah, look at our modern age. We have a chess-playing robot. How did they get it in and out with Nobody ever knowing in so few people. I guess the same as magicians. Yeah, there's, it's everything's crazy, crazy secret. And they would purposely, every once in a while, let the compartment that had the gears in it open up. Oh, you saw the gears. I hope you can't replicate the, the machine. They would purposely make sure that everybody knew that it was this extremely complicated mechanism. Yeah? Was it a engine chess player? Um, it didn't have to be that small. I mean it's a pretty big thing. it was a pretty big but they had to get a small guy. Um, and and it's for eighty five years, so they got a succession of small that's chess players. That's what I was just gonna say. You had to get a relatively small chess playing dude to wow. do that. Wow, and and it only lost once? I don't it know never that it ever lost. lost. So it never lost. So we had all these different guys playing all these different people and we, that's, He's a good chess player. That's really amazing. Then again, probably, I mean, it wasn't playing like master chess players. It was, you know, it, was, it was doing exhibitions. Hey, Yahoo, come play the chess playing computer. Kind something of like the Harlem Globetrotters. Trun- Much <laughs> the same as the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> <Bowl> trun- <laughs> they're not playing <laughs> basketball. Let's be honest. Anyway, but so the how did the truth finally come out? Um, oh years how later. How did you know? So well, someone who had done it? Oh, yeah. Uh, or yeah, something? long after it had been destroyed, they were like, okay, here's what's really going Here's what here's what it really was but I just it just to me this is this is a wonderful snapshot now it has nothing to do with church history in and of itself other than people are fine with even smoke and mirrors stuff that you go but it it couldn't do that there's no way that you could have something with gears and 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 springs beat people in chess it just doesn't it doesn't work like that doesn't matter people at this time were saying boy we can do anything with science which doesn't have a direct implication on church history, and yet does speak to this growing sense that rationalism, science, mechanation, that's the future. That's, you know, that's how we can say that we've arrived. By the time we get to the next century, uh, all of a sudden you're going to start getting all these novels about, that's so we're going to shoot somebody to the moon. We're going to go to the, we can do anything we want because we've got science. And that was H.G. Wells' whole thing. It's like science, science, science. Uh, Jules Verne. Science, science, science. Science is becoming God. Science is becoming religion. Anyway, same year, Maria Antonia married Louis Sixteenth of France. Now, if you remember, we talked about this before, she's the 15th child of the, uh, of the Empress Maria Theresa, who has just been hanging around forever. And she has 15 children which also makes her the sister of the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. Okay, this is an important family: the Empress of Austria, her son, the 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 Holy Roman Emperor, and her daughter, the Queen of France. Kind of getting important. The Habsburgs. This is the Austrian Habsburgs. Anyway, in France they call her Marie Antoinette, right? So Marie Antoinette helps build this alliance with France by marrying the Dauphin. Which is what the French call the crown prince. British would call the crown prince the. He's the prince of. Prince of Wales, yeah. The prince of Wales becomes the next king in England. The dauphin becomes the next king in France. Okay, anyway. So she marries the guy who's going to become Louis XVI, the guy who's also going to get deposed by the French Revolution. So. Even as I say, oh, she married Louis Sixteenth. If you were like a history guy, you'd go, ha, 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 ha. oh. Because this is, this is the, the monarchy that topples the French monarchies. Yeah? Is she famous for let them eat cake? Okay, she never said let them eat cake. I could give you a quarter because I knew somebody was going to go there. <laughs> never said. She's the one that everybody says, no, he didn't. It was a toss-up to know who was going to say it, but I knew somebody was going to ask it's interesting, though, that he said it exactly when you had it next on your I'm bank. telling you, I know you people. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's That's not just you. Every, actually, everybody I likes think to think that it was Marie Antoinette that, that, that said, let them eat cake. Where she was just like, oh, I don't care about the poor. Now, if anybody actually said it, and it's a little bit of a discussion as to whether or not anybody actually said it. But if anybody actually said it, it was probably spoken a century earlier by Maria Teresa, who was the extremely unhappy Spanish wife of Louis the Fourteenth? If you've ever seen any version of like *The Man in the Iron Mask*, where you have a very flamboyant, extravagant Louis the Fourteenth and his kind of dumpy, little balding Spanish wife, yeah, that's about right. They they they, they hated each other. Um, she she did not like him and his extravagances. He did not. Uh, her at all, any part of her. But she was also not the brightest bulb. So um, it's also not what she said. Everybody always says, yeah, let me cake, and that's not technically what she said. She was told that because Louis was spending so much money on things like Versailles, because if you ever want to feel like maybe you should topple a monarchy, I get the impression you should just visit Mar- Versailles because I was talking to Megan on the, on the way here, and, and we saw a willow tree that had been like manicured. And I'm like, what a travesty against nature. If there's ever a tree that should not be manicured, it's a willow. And I was thinking, you know, if, if I ever went to Versailles, I would probably puke. And as much as I would appreciate so much of the artistry, the whole thing is based on extravagant artificiality. I mean, every tree, every bush manicured, every room covered in extremely expensive paintings and gold filigree everywhere. I mean, again, this is a king that helped... Uh, this is a king that did... That, 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 uh, I don't know, they'll do it this way. Versailles, I think, where they had the, the throne that was solid gold and so heavy that it fell through the floor. Yeah, so, extreme opulence at a time when his people were starving. Uh, He he called himself the Sun King, and so he would like to powder gold into cream and put it on his face so that he would look like he shone with gold. At the time when his people were starving, he's covering himself literally with gold. Anyway, so when she was told that the peasants had no bread to eat, and the bread being their staple of their diet, she said, Well, let them eat brioche then, which is like a pastry, like a fancy bread. She's like, they're like, they have no bread. She's like, well, then they can have donuts, can't they? You you really don't understand this, do you? It's not that she's like, I don't care about them. She's like, I don't understand. If there's no bread on the plate, they can eat donuts or maybe lobster. Well, what would they put their caviar on if they don't have toast points? I don't, I don't understand. The problem isn't that she was cruel, it's that she's an idiot, right? She's born crazy rich, and married a king who was crazy rich. She probably went through her entire life without ever even, and I'm not kidding, seeing a peasant. It is quite possible she never laid eyes on anybody other than people at court. She never saw burlap. She would have no idea how somebody makes her clothes. They just come that way. utterly oblivious to what it meant to be not crazy, filthy rich. That's what that phrase means. Not, not uh, you know, I don't care if they're starving or anything, but just this idea of I don't grasp the concept of not enough food to eat. But that was a hundred years ago so you can understand why by the time marie antoinette comes to power everybody's thinking you know what you guys don't have any idea at all what it means to be poor to you you don't care about us at all you don't care if we starve you don't care at all doesn't help that in the middle of something called the flower war not flower with a w flower with a u nationwide riots over food um Right after Louis and Marie Antoinette were coronated and uh, been crowned in 1775, bad harvest led to a scarcity of, 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 of any kind of grains, actually. But especially, uh, flour prices went sky high. People couldn't afford flour to make their bread. So it's not just that they didn't have bread, it's that they couldn't even make bread, even if they could. They, they could. So the people were starving in the streets, and they were stealing shipments of flour. They were doing everything that they could possibly do. Right in the middle of that, right in the middle of that, Marie Antoinette celebrated becoming queen by basically dropping, like, a small fortune on gambling and on dresses made by a famous Parisian designer, Rose Bertin. So she's, like, spent, again, people starving in the streets. She spent millions of dollars on new dresses and just basically throwing money away at gambling parlor, parlors and ran around telling everybody, hey, look at my new dress. Everybody like my new dress? Starving people looking at her going, what? Are you kidding? Yeah, I'll, I'll only wear this once because I never wear the same dress twice. Think Kardashian on steroids. Yeah. You know, that's, that's where we're going with this. Starving presidents didn't appreciate their Austrian queen spending all their money on more clothes, right? Anyway, she loved her diversions. In fact, she loved theater, and that was one of the things that led to the French Revolution was that she liked theater. 1784. There's a silly little play that comes out called The Marriage of Figaro. Anybody ever hear The Marriage of Figaro? At least from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Okay. <laughs> Mozart turned it into a musical and an opera and performed it in Vienna starting 1786. But the whole thing was about this count who's like, I don't like my own wife and your wife is hot to his barber and so he's going to manipulate the barber's wife into bed and take her away from him and you know, just messes with his servants, doesn't care about anything, and he forces the barber of Seville. See, that's the other part of the trilogy. Anyway, so the barber who's from Seville to, to to seduce his wife toward the count. It's like, you got to make your wife want to do this with me. It's But it's written like it's a trifle. It's written like a little <laughs> funny little thing. Louis said, what are you, nuts? People don't like us to begin with. You, is this a good idea? Do we have a play about how nobles manipulate the peasants and do whatever we darn well please? Because that's the whole point of the play, is that you're supposed to, by the end, go, this count is a total jerk. Who cares about the, uh, about the nobles? Now, we get to said, oh, it's cute and funny. And she, she said, we got to let people see this. This is just so funny. It's like a Friends episode. Yes! It may be tacky and irreverent and immoral, but it would let me... Huge hit. Connors saw it as a clear indictment of the nobles. Huge hit. Every time it it, 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 it was sold out, everybody loved to watch it, and every time they watched it, they hated the nobles more and more and more. Because again, starving people don't necessarily like snotty rich people. right? Go figure. So it did exactly what Louis said he was afraid it was going to do, and Marie's like, but every time I see it I giggle. And he's like, and every time we see it, our monarchy becomes more and more unstable. Anyway, He's the king. Why he let <coughs> Gotta live with her. Oh. It's a big palace. It is a big palace. Anyway, same year, famine diseases strike all over the place, lots of places. 1770, very bad year for health. Um, the Great Czech Famine, 1770 killed 500,000 people. The Bengal, the Bangla, famine of 1770 killed 10 million people, one third of the population of Bengal. Um, The bubonic plague hit Moscow in 1770, killing 200,000 people in the city itself, causing riots and everything. Nasty, nasty, nasty year. How does the human race survive? Uh, We just keep breathing. Now... Is that part of why they always the white European brought all this stuff over because they really were being sick. Well, there is something to be said for that. Uh, I mean, if, when we talked about how the Europeans uh, came over and brought diseases to the New World, of course, they brought new diseases, new diseases from the New World back to Europe. So, you know. Uh, but yeah, we don't talk about that. We don't, well, we did in class, so. Mm-hmm. But, yes. Anyway, this is kind of one of those examples kind of not you might be tempted to say, what, did a volcano erupt somewhere? Because th- we've seen this twice now, where volcanoes erupt, and like a year later, bad Juju magumbo goes down, right? Yep, that wasn't the case this time. Not this time. Soon, very soon, stick around for your volcano fun, Scott. What is <laughs> First off, watch psych. First off, death and disease had always been rampant in history. There's just, there's... Everybody's always dying, right and left. It's part of, anytime you get any kind of people together in an urban setting especially, if you get a club of people together in a a, a place that doesn't deal with sanitation issues well, you're gonna have death and disease. This is reason number 715 why, though I love history, and I really do think we should study history because I really do think we've lost a lot of (coughs) very important things. I'm much happier living now than I would be living even 150 years ago because People die a lot back then, you know, and, and uh, Wendy was an epileptic who can't see worth a darn without glasses. She would not have handled it well at 150 years ago. What are you saying? Oh, sewage. I was just saying, I, I appreciate today because of the, the way we clear sewage. Yeah, 150 years ago, they were still throwing sewage out of their windows onto you in the street. There's a reason why everybody in, in England walked around with umbrellas all the time. It wasn't just to avoid the sun and the rain second thing is um, that the, the deaths in 1770 were technically unrelated, though there was at least one common element. It had nothing to do with a volcano. Any, yeah, maybe this is too open-ended a question. I was going to ask, does anybody remember what, there's, there's this time period here in terms of what? No, good guess though. Something called the Little Ice Age is going on in Europe. Where it, 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 temperatures are markedly cooler still than they had been for a while. Do you remember when people were ice skating on the, yeah, on the canals in Venice, mm-hmm. ice skating across the, the English Channel, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, the little ice age is going on in Europe, and temperatures are still way below. To ice from one country to another. Kind of freaky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's you know, millions of deaths, but otherwise, a lot of fun. Um <laughs> <laughs> think on the bright side. Okay, in the Czech lands, over here in the in the uh, in the uh, Austria Austria-Hungary uh, Empire, in the Czech lands, the fields are are uh, got t- uh, tons of prolonged rains because of the because of the cold. And then all these fungal infections destroyed all the crops, because we saw that in the New World. That's what ultimately brought all the deaths that were eventually attributed to to the Europeans coming over, was all the fungal infections that were going on there and and the starvation that came from that. But anyway, nasty, nasty famine. Uh, Same thing happened that year in Ireland. So we start getting some of those famines going on as well. But the uprisings among the peasants as a result of that were so nasty that they were still... This whole region was still unsettled a hundred years later. A century later, they were still dealing with angry peasants because of how the situation was handled and the fact that they were still trying to recover from how bad 1770 was. Um, In Bengal, a famine was also started by a drought, ironically enough. Czech lands, by too much rain. In Bengal, not enough rain. Not enough rain uh, brought about in part by the Little Ice Age it wouldn't have been anywhere near as bad if it weren't for the East India Company. What's the East India Company, anybody? T- Among other things, but yeah, it's England's foreign affairs company. They're running around doing all the stuff in in, in other lands. They're doing uh, pardon me? Seersucker, I think they transported seersucker fabric. they transported a lot of different things, but they had basically a monopoly on running India at this time. So, a company that is being propped up by the British government running another country. When they came to power after the French left, remember in the Seven Years' War, France removed itself from India and England came in to start running it, and the easiest way that England could come up with doing that is just to turn it over to the East India Company. One of the first things that they did was um, to try to maximize their profits. They doubled the taxes on farmland immediately. That was the first thing that they did. Like, nope, everybody, you're paying twice as much to be a farmer. So a lot of farmers went out of work, and some that didn't at least were just striding by. That would have been bad, except that even once the once the actual uh, famine hit, profits started to dip because you know people are dying; they're not farming as much. So you're the East India Company. What do you do? Well, you raise taxes again by another 10 percent because you're you know you got to maximize your profits. There's tons of people in India, so what? So they'll die. Whatever. On top of that, they forced farmers to grow indigo and poppies, opium, because that's more profitable than food stuffs. And so they're like, well, no, no, it's it's illegal for you to grow rice, you have to grow poppies, you have to grow indigo plants, you have to do that kind of stuff, because that's the stuff we can sell. And use that for drugs back then, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the East India Company was one of the biggest uh, exporters of opium at the time. Okay, third they said it's illegal for you to hoard i.e. store rice or any other kind of food because we want you to have to buy it from the East India Company we're importing it from our from our stores elsewhere in other countries so you have to buy all your food from us you can't store it for yourself and you can't grow it for yourselves 10 million people died in Bengal a third of the population because the East India Company says yeah that's where we make the most money what's the problem with that? Now, do you understand why some of the indigenous peoples go, I don't want England. I don't like them. They're not nice. Yeah. So, anytime anybody sits there and goes, British weren't nice to the Indians, I'm like, especially those Indians. Yes. I mean, if you really want to go pick on Britain's handling of Indians, go to Bengal. That's the worst place where they did that. Anyway, on the plus side, though, it's not that every European in Bengal was bad. Because I want to have something nice going on It's not just them being jerks Thanks to that French retreat Out of India All of a sudden we got to see more Protestant missionaries coming in Because instead of being controlled by Catholic France Now You can actually be Protestant more So 1758, a Swedish born Lutheran missionary Named Johan Kernander Arrived at Trenkbar. Now remember we talked about this oh, About 50 years ago um, About a guy named Bartholomew Tsigenbald. Anybody remember that? And if you sit there and you go, yeah, I remember that, congratulations. Um, but this is a guy that had been a, a missionary, a Lutheran missionary down there half a century earlier. And Kiernander looks at what he did there and said, oh, you did a great job. You really connected to the people there. So he decides to go north to Bengal and to do what Tsigenbald what, uh, had done. He's like, I'm going to reach out to all the classes, not just the higher upper class. I'm going to reach out to the poor. At a time when not only the British but even the other Indians were saying, "Well, let the poor die. Who cares about them? They're a different caste." He's like, "I'm going to bring a printing press with me because there's all sorts of good reasons for that. A, it just it, it, pardon me, brings that society up to a modern level. But also, it's easier to get things across to them. It's easier to disseminate the gospel, etc. Makes a lot of uh, makes a lot of friends, and he also had some money to work with in Bengal. He's like, you know, I realize." There's no Protestant places of worship here. In in Calcutta, nice big city, and there's no place to worship. So he spent his own money to build a a, a church building that became known as the Old Church in Calcutta. Nice big, huge thing. When it was nearing completion in 1770 and this big famine hit and people were dying in droves, he actually opened up the, the it's not actually open for worship yet church building as kind of an ad hoc hospital and safe haven for the poor. He's like, Everywhere else, you're going to get you're you're going to starve. You're going to get abused. People are going to take your stuff. Come to the church building. We'll protect you. We'll feed you. Saved thousands of lives by opening up his church building to them. So everybody kind of liked You It was like this guy's this guy's actually a really classy guy, and everybody was like, "I'm not even Christian, and I think you rock," which is always nice for a missionary to have generated that sense, right? Yeah the British like him, though? Like, was he buying from them so it was okay? Um, no, the British didn't necessarily like him because he was becoming popular and important and not working within their system. Having said that, he set up an endowment to keep the church running in, per- in perpetuity. He's like, I know I'm not going to last forever. Nobody else seems to be wanting to take over this mission. I'm getting older. I'm wealthy, so I'm going to set up a, a, a something to, to, uh, uh, to fund itself over time. And then the East India Company bankrupted him, because, again, he was their major competitor in Bengal, and they don't like major competitors. So they, they made it in a point of singling him out and making sure that they broke him. In fact, I mean, he's got no personal money, and all of his money is tied up. It, you know, what little money he's got left is tied up in this endowment, and you're the British East India Company, what do you do? But you can tax him, but you're already kind of taxing him, and he doesn't have any money. You close the doors to the church until his debts could be repaid, because you can't actually touch the endowment because it's not actually his money anymore; it's going to the church, and yet still technically in his name. So you just shut the doors of the church, have the sheriff of Calcutta lock him, and say, until you pay your te- until you pay what you owe everybody's debts, there is no church, there is no safe self, uh, safe haven for the poor, there is no hospital to take care of people. British East India Company. Rockingly cool, right? On the plus side, there's a guy named Charles Grant, a good friend of William Wilberforce, that said, no, 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 no. I'm filthy, stinking rich. I'm buying the church building. I'm paying off all of his debts and we're reopening this building. I don't even live in Calcutta. I don't even care. But there you go. Increasingly, there's a clump of wealthy evangelical Protestant people in, in England saying, we have power, we have wealth, and we have an extremely corrupt world. What can we do about that? I can sit here and I can play whist till the till the day is long or I can actually do something. I'm seeing people starving in Calcutta. What can I do about that? I'm seeing people locked in chains in holes of ships. What can I do about that? And so for the next 50 years or so, you're going to see a bunch of these young, wealthy, aristocratic, if not aristocrats in England, uh, men, doing something about that, entering politics, making use of their monies to actually accomplish something in the world. That should say something to us, that if you get these guys going, I've got wealth, I've got privilege, and the world is suffering, surely I can do something about that. Even the poorest of us here in the United States have a lot more wealth and privilege than most people do elsewhere in the world. What can we do about that? Anyway, King to die, 12 years later, 1799, 60 years of ministry. Booyah. Okay, I said there were three of them. I talked about two of them. Uh, there's, uh, there's the Czech Republic, there's Bengal, and there's Moscow. Moscow's plague was also arguably the result of the Little Ice Age, but the worst part is how everybody dealt with it in the city. Businesses and markets all shut down and the populace hid in their homes, which makes total sense if you've got bubonic plague breaking out in your city, right? Except if you live in a city, that means nobody gets food, right? It's not like you go, oh, no, we're just staying on our farm. No, you're a certified public accountant and you're not going out and there's no market for food. What do you eat? Your calculator? It doesn't work like that, right? So people start starving all over the place. And then the city officials institute all these quarantine zones and they burn down any homes and businesses that they think might be tainted with the plague to keep it from spreading. Pardon me? Well they usually let not always, but yeah, they usually let people leave their homes and go to the quarantine zone. But you didn't get reimbursed for this. Your city is gone, your 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 business is gone, your home is gone. It probably did save lives, and this is the thing. It's like Mansonar during during World War Two. You go, did Japanese internment camps possibly save lives in World War Two? Quite possibly. There, there, we know that there was a small percentage of Japanese Japanese Americans who were actually fifth column agents for Japan in World War Two, but a tiny sliver. You go, did you actually arguably undermine their terrorist efforts within the United States by throwing them in unconstitutionally in internment camps? Yeah. Did you save lives? Yeah. Was it right? No, not even remotely. It's unconstitutional. It's an immoral thing to do. Did you save lives? Yes. Same thing here. You look at me and go, by burning down anything you think might be infested by by plague, did you possibly save lives? Quite possibly. Did you cause more lives to die because of starvation and stuff? Oh, yeah. Was it the right moral thing to do? Oh, heavens no. You had no right to be doing all that kind of stuff. People went bananas. They desperately flocked over to uh, this church in central to touched an icon of the Virgin Mary because, as you know, icons have special magic powers, right? Everybody knows that. Um, this particular one was famous because back in the city of Vladimir, uh, a century, or a couple centuries before, uh, there had been a plague and somebody had touched the icon of the Virgin Mary. There, Vladimir, and the plague stopped. So it's got special magic anti-plague powers. So everybody tried to flock and, and touch this and the Metropolitan, who's the uh, Archbishop of, of, of that area, Ambrosius of Moscow, said, No, you're sick and yucky. You don't get to come anywhere near a holy icon. It's goldy magic glowing thing. It's holy, and yuckiness doesn't get to go toward holy. We learn this in, 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 in the Bible, right? God is far too pure to deal with messed up, sick people. Only special, glowy people get to come in contact with God. I think the Bible is extremely clear about this, right? You look at the outward appearance, not the heart. That's There's a whole verse about that, doesn't it? God doesn't look at the heart. He looks at the whole outward. Anyway, point is this. I know that historians have said, no, no, no. What he was saying was, we don't want sick people to all congregate together. They'll make everybody else sick. But that's not what he said. That's not what Ambrosius' argument was. He's like, no, you're yucky. You don't get to touch this thing. So the people went bonkers. They launched this huge riot, lasted for days. Um, Dozens of people died. It was a big, nasty, ugly mess. They made it a point to kill Ambrosius. They hunted him down, broke in, and made sure that they killed the metropolitan here. By the way, what does that do for their image of the church? When Christians say, well, the one thing you can't do is seek God out, because we want nothing to do with you because you're sick and yucky. Any? Get the impression at all that the that anybody in the United States might feel that that's the way the church feels toward them today? Yep. That there might be some whole sets of people that say, because I'm sick or yucky or messed up, the church says, well, then the last place that God wants you is anywhere near Him. <sighs> Learn from history. Anyway, 1772, slavery is declared illegal. Don't get too excited. It's only illegal in England. In, English, in, in the island of England itself. But still, it's important. There's an African slave named James Somerset who was purchased by an English customs agent who lived in Boston, but then he escaped when they arrived to England. Stuart was going to have the, the customs agent was going to have him sold into hard labor in Jamaica, but the slave's godparents in England, because he was baptized into the church, his godparents petitioned the court and, and, and said, well, since it's against the law to enslave anybody on the island of Britain itself. So if you remember a couple centuries ago, they decided you can't buy or sell slaves in England itself. That's that's not what we do. So they say, okay, since you can't enslave somebody in England, England must see slavery as essentially immoral, something yucky that it wants to push outside of itself. You can't make somebody a slave in England. He actually became a Christian here in England You're essentially enslaving a Christian. Is that really what you want to do? His lawyer was an Irishman who famously argued that regarding slavery, he said, no matter with what solemnities he may have been devoted on the altar of slavery, the moment he touches the sacred soil of Britain, the altar and the gods sink together in the dust. His soul walks abroad in her own majesty. His body swells beyond the measure of his chains, which burst from around him. He stands redeemed, regenerated, and disenthralled, unenslaved by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation. The moment that a slave walks on the sacred soil of England cannot remain a slave. Stuart's lawyer said, whoa, 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 whoa. You realize you have like 15,000 slaves currently sitting in England. You cannot set this guy free. If you do, you've got to set the other 15,000 slaves free in England. We're not talking even about the ones in the colonies. Just the ones sitting in England. It would be a disaster. You can't do it. Sounds like the argument itself made. Does, doesn't it? <laughs> so what do you do? You're the you're the you're the judge in charge? The judge, a guy named Lauren Mansfield, said, Okay, I hear both sides. I hear both sides. And he nods back into antiquity and he rules, Fiat justitia ruat calum. Anybody know what that means? Yeah. Let justice be done though the heavens may fall. In other words, I don't care what the consequences are. You have to do the right thing because it's the right thing. You cannot make a judicial decision based on what might happen as a result. You have to say, what does the law, what does morality support? So I don't care what happens. What's the right thing to do? Declared both Somerset and all other 15,000 slaves in England free. Immediately. Booyah! Huge turmoil everywhere, but he's a judge, and he had a legal precedent. This didn't slave... Okay, remember, this didn't uh, release anybody in the British colonies. This is just slaves sitting in England itself, right? And yet, it makes this precedent that slavery is immoral. Slavery is yucky. A good Englishman doesn't support slavery, right? Right? A legal precedent that William Wilberforce would jump on in a couple of decades. He's like, wait, 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 we've already agreed that it's immoral for any Englishman to make somebody a slave. It's immoral for them to be enslaved on English soil. Doesn't that count for everywhere that's English soil? Anywhere that's English soil, it's wrong for there to be slavery. Whether it's in physical England or in India or in the colonies, what have you. Kind of a huge court decision. It's the sort of thing you have to kind of figure out as you go. Can I take it in bites? So what happened to the economy? Um, Actually, they, not good things. (laughs) It really really hurt the economy. So you're in England, let me go back. It hurt the economy, you're in England, you have to get money from somewhere. Where can you get money? Hmm? You can steal it, but who do you steal it from? I mean, you could conquer another nation, but that requires a war. The colonies are sitting right there. They can just give us more money. Let's just tax the colonies more. Who cares if they have representation right now, right? Okay. Seventeen seventy-three. Clement the 14th finally dissolves the Jesuits. We've been. We, he's. They've been having troubles for a while. Take a wild guess at why he stated that he'd finally dissolved. What does the thing that he's like? This he screwed this part up. We've talked about it a couple times. What? Yes, yeah, comes the Pope. Anytime you see a guy going like this, that's that's. Cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, didn't he didn't make enough conference. Oh, my goodness. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> the mission <laughs> work in China. Oh. And the thought how successful they were. That's what kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. So because they were successful, we have to get rid of them. Absolutely. stinking right. and Right. Because they don't they do it the way we want, want them to the do it. the reason for getting rid of them is that they haven't been successful. Exactly. Okay. Let's talk about that. Bull of dissolution. Clement said, the Jesuits had consistently sown disorder and disharmony in the church because they disagreed. Anytime you disagree, that's disharmony and disorder, which means you're not sowing peace, which means you're a bad person. To disagree with Rome is to be a bad person. A holy order is supposed to bear the fruit of peace, which only comes from obeying the powers that God himself has put on the earth. Oh, by the way, I ran into this this week, listening to Catholic radio. Um, I was flip-flopping through the stations, and I heard a guy was answering some caller by describing the uh, the birth of the Baptists, what started Baptismism. And he actually, I'm, I'm listening to the very end of this, when it, when it came out, and I'm like, no, oh, he's actually he's actually doing this rather well. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there going, yeah, the history's about right. And he said, he summed it up, he said, so basically the theology was essentially a Reformed theology, but the practice was essentially an Anabaptist practice. I'm like, that's probably not a bad way of summing it up. He said, so clearly, heresy. Um, if for no other reason than that Baptists were started by man, and Catholicism was started by God himself. Come on. what? Well, so. Uh, I was going to say, and then you crashed your car. <laughs> and I decided, I, and I again, I my, my found myself going, why do I listen to this? Oh. Anyway, he also argued that the original mandate was to convert the heathen and uphold their vows of poverty But, they haven't been changing the heathens to be Roman. I mean, they still let them use Chinese in their masses, instead of good Latin, as God intended. So, they're not converting people to be Roman, even though the the Pope that first sent them over there said, don't convert them to our nation, convert them to our faith, right? Benedict VII. Um, But no, they're like, no, 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 no. You're not converting them over to a Roman Catholicism, and... You're making a lot of money, you're extremely successful. How are you converting people and being poor? You're you the, the order has money? No, 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 you're obviously evil. And the papal well, see the, the 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 papes uh the papes <laughs> the, the the pope's office has consistently tried to change their non-collegial attitudes, but the Jesuits have consistently remained non-conformist, and non-conformist means disobedient. So, on top of that The Catholic kings of France, Spain, and Portugal have expelled you from their lands. How can we in Rome support you? You're done. You're over. So he wrote, after a mature deliberation, we do, out of our certain knowledge and the fullness of our apostolic power, suppress and abolish the said company of Jesus, the Jesuits. We deprive it of all activity whatsoever, so that the name of the company shall be and is forever extinguished and suppressed. The Jesuits no longer exist. Forever, yeah. Eighteen o one, Pope Pius, uh, the seventh, reinstated the Jesuits in Russian territories, and then later said, "Okay, yeah, fine, fine, fine. You're you're fine. You can come back." in Eighteen fourteen. So, forever lasted about twenty eight years. There were still enough of them dead. Oh yeah. What they do in the meantime? Hung out in the Holy Roman Empire and Russia. Oh, they became a secret society that helped do. The okay, uh, well, yeah, well, they, they, they remember we talked about last time is that both the Holy Roman Empire and Russia went, yeah. we don't care what Rome says. Right. So the Pope goes, there is no Jesuits. And the Holy Roman Empire goes, they're right here. No, there are orange. they're right here. Mm-hmm. No, no, they're right here. Guys want to wear orange? Wear orange. It'll really mess up Rome, let me tell you. So yeah, they're fine with that. All right, 1774, Parliament says we need more money. And what with freeing all the slaves, we need more money. So they passed what's called the Intolerable Acts. Okay. After, remember the debacle surrounding the Stamp Act that we talked about a couple weeks ago. After that, Britain's treasurer, a guy named Charles Townsend, uh, proposed another way of getting money from the colonies. It's like, oh, okay, that didn't work. So let's do something completely different. So they passed what's called the Townsend Acts. Instead of taxing the colonies directly, we'll put taxes on paint and paper and glass and lead and sugar and tea imported into the colonies. Any kind of import just has additional taxes on it. That way we can tax them without taxing them. Then it's not that taxation without representation. It's just we're taxing all the goods. Right? No, this is still the same thing, isn't it? You're still taxing stuff without asking them. They have no representation. They're like, no, you can't do this. So the Townsend Acts were disgusting to them. They're like, this is horrible. And they began illegally importing tea from the Dutch. Like, fine. We have to pay through the nose for yours? We'll just buy it from the Dutch. Get it much cheaper. Yeah, tea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, with being Dutch, right? Exactly. Now, who do you think is the biggest opponent to this, then? Of, this, of, the, of the Townsend Acts? The East India Company, yeah. which starts losing tons of money. They're like, oh, nobody's buying our tea. Nobody's buying our tea. Large chunk of the British population was buying their tea from me- us in the colonies. And nobody's doing that. So they start stacking up tea in their warehouses that's not being sold, and it's going bad, and they're like, what do we do? They beg Parliament to repeal the tax. They're like, please, stop taxing tea. Please. So England England says, okay, we'll do this. The Tea Act of 1773, we're going to keep the tax on tea. The colonists still have to pay that, but you East India Company will give your representatives a rebate. So technically... The colonists are still paying the tea tax. You guys don't have to. It'll be cheaper for them uh, to to do it because we've lowered some of the other taxes. And you guys can import your tea directly to the colonies instead of having to go through England like you have been. You've always had to go through English middlemen and then, then send it to the colonies. This is going to be a lot less expensive for you. So the East India Company, you can sell off your surplus tea that's been stacking up. You're going to make more money because you don't have to pay for middlemen in England, and you can just turn it right around and sell it to consignees over here in the colonies, who then would pay the tax themselves. So, in short, you're not all that middleman expenses you can cut off from the from the consumer. But so far as England's government is concerned, we're still getting that money from them. It's just you're not having to spend as much money. But then the middlemen would be happy. No, 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 but then, no, no, no. And you can sell your tea for less money in America and even less than the Dutch tea. Because you're not having to spend all this money on on, on all the middleman costs. So the colonists are going to be happy because they can spend less money. It's going to cost everybody less money and England still makes money. Win, 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 win. Win, 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 win. win. Except it's still taxation without a long representation. It's, like it's still that three pence tax on tea. It's still the wrong kind of people making money. Even if we're all making more money, it's immoral, the colonists said. And it also doesn't help that a lot of the people who have been making money off of smuggling in Dutch tea were part of the Sons of Liberty. The guys with printing presses who have already made a name for themselves for agitation, they're like, oh, you don't like this. This is a bad plan. And so they start going, no, no, it's still taxation without representation. You say that because you're a smuggler. No, it's immoral. It's immoral. Everybody hated the idea that this essentially gave the East India Company a monopoly back on tea again. We're helping the East India Company, they're the only people that you can buy tea from. And there's and all the middlemen who was talking about what about the middlemen? Okay, all the middlemen go who did what now? Yeah, you just did our business. yeah, so you got a whole bunch of guys in England saying you took all of our business, and you got a bunch of guys in America saying you took all of our business. So, November 29th is today, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, November 29th, 1773. The Sons of Liberty said, we're going to have a mass meeting in Boston to decide an appropriate reaction to the Tea Act. We're going to come, we're going to talk, figure out what's going on here. What should we do? And yes, this is part of why we drink coffee instead of tea. The import ship Dartmouth comes to Boston filled with tea. And Sam Adams, who is part of the Sons of Liberty, and somebody who had made a lot of money illegally importing Dutch tea, called on all the loyal Bostonians and consignees to refuse to pay the tax that would allow the crew to unload. Don't let them unload their tea. The only way they can unload their tea is if the consignees agree to pay the three-pence tax. Don't do it. It's an immoral tax. And it doesn't help me and my business. But it's also an immoral tax. I want to give him credit that he actually is like, no, I actually believe this. Governor Thomas Hutchinson said, Oh, I refuse to allow the Dartmouth to leave without unloading. Somebody has got to pay the tax. So what do you do? The Dartmouth and then two other sister ships, the Eleanor and the Beaver, also sit into port and you're stuck. You cannot stay and you cannot leave. I mean, your whole job is to dump it off, get the tax and come back. You get paid by that. You can't just go back to England. You can't leave. And the governor is not letting you leave, but you can't stay because then you you don't make any money. So what do you do? What happens? How do you break this? You can't leave. You can't stay. You can't unload your tea. You can't keep your tea. Something's got to give, right? So December 16th, roughly 100 men dressed as Mohawk Indians, (laughs) but like this. Nobody, nobody thought that it was actually Indians that did this. They dressed like Mohawk Indians, snuck aboard and dumped all the tea into the harbor. Yay! Go (laughs) Patriots! All depends on who you ask. Samuel Adams immediately dubs this the... Boston Tea Party. Boston Tea Party, and says this is a political protest. It says nothing to do with me making money or not making money. Everything to do with the fact that we have a constitutional right. No taxation without representation. We shouldn't have to pay this tax that we didn't vote on. And many of them were. And, okay, very little in history is all just one thing. I mean, there's all sorts of different motivations. And it didn't go unnoticed, either in America or England, various people wrote on this, that the people didn't just wear hoods or something. They didn't just paint their faces purple, and so they couldn't be recognized. They dressed in a specifically American fashion, taking a particularly American stance against England. How did they look American?
1: Yeah, and more paint wait, wait a second, we're paying And we're American upset
0: with the Washington Redskins. Yes. I'm sorry, what were you All the English don't think of America may think Yes. That's why James Fenimore Cooper stuff went over well in England, because they're like, oh write an Indian book. They're like, okay. Because they're constantly interacting with the Indians, sure. But that's the thing is, everybody in England said and this is like one of the first times that you get the expression, they've gone <laughs> native. They have uh, they, they have accepted. Native. They've accepted American ways over British ways. For the first time, they really are thinking of themselves primarily as Americans as opposed to Brits. It's an interesting interesting pivot point in history. Parliament is incensed, so they pass what they call the Intolerable Acts. They're like, we're going to punish you guys. We're going to pass laws specifically to punish Massachusetts. First off, the Boston Port Act. The whole port is closed. That's it. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out until the East India Company has been paid a restitution for the tea they've lost. All of Massachusetts has to pay the And that's a, that's a stinkload of tea. And you have to buy it all. Not just the tax. You have to pay for the tea now, too. So you have to pay for everything, every red cent. And, and you guys, I don't care if all of you starve because you don't get imports. Of course, even the common citizens are like, what do we do? We didn't do anything! A hundred people that we don't even know did something, and you're punishing all of us? You know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe England isn't fair. So by punishing everybody, suddenly everybody gets a little rebellious. Instead of just punishing the hundred people, now everybody in Massachusetts hates England. The Massachusetts Government Act says, okay, town meetings are now illegal. Now all leadership at every level now has to be specifically appointed by Parliament or the King. We are going to control every part of this. And Massachusetts says, actually, we have, we have a charter. That's not the way that's not yeah. the way this works. We have a king's charter, and they said, null and void, because we said so. <laughs> we now run Massachusetts the way we want to. How does Massachusetts feel about that? Uh, take out of here. How do the other colonies feel about that? Because all of a sudden, the other colonies went, oh, uh, can you do we that? We've got charters, too. If we torque you off tomorrow... Are you going to rescind our charters? Is that the way this works? Do you guys get to do whatever you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it? The Administration of Justice Act said all British royal officials have to be tried in England proper. But you still have to have, if you're going to bring any case against them, you still have to have witnesses. Yeah, Yeah, on your own dime. They won't pay for it. So if you ever want to charge a British official with anything, you have to pay out of pocket. And go to England yourself and lose not only everything that cost to go there, but lose all the, the income that you would have had in the several months it would take you to do all this. And there's racism. Oh. oh, yeah. So this effectively meant royal colonies and the uh, royal officials in the colonies could do anything they want. You can't bring charges against them. Washington referred to this as the Murder Act. It's like they can literally get away with murder. And unless you want to leave your cobbler shop, spend every dime you have to be a witness to go over to England and hope that you can win your court case, they can pretty much do anything they want. They live in their homes. Just The, the quartering Act! There you go! Required that colonial governments uh, should house and feed the occupying British forces. Now, technically, this didn't say that they could go into the people's houses. It said that the, the governments had to find houses for them. They, had to, they usually found, like, disused buildings and things like that, but in a pinch, yeah, they would have to open up people's houses and say, you have to feed them, you have to house them. And so the colonists are like, wait, so you're saying it's at least theoretically possible, whether they ever actually did it, it's at least theoretically possible that you're going to kick honest, innocent people out of their own homes and these guys get to go in there, these guys get get to sleep in our beds, these guys get to eat all of our food. We have to actually pay for and house and feed the occupying army Yeah, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. The Quebec Act ceded all of Ontario, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and parts of Minnesota to Quebec, guaranteeing freedom of religion in Canada. They're like, Beck, that's all yours. How does that answer your question last week? Yeah, that's what I was... I knew you were getting to that. I don't. So part of it... You go... The question last week was, well, why didn't Canada? Why it wasn't it just the 13 colonies? Why wasn't Canada part of it? You go, because Britain chopped this huge swath and said, everything north of this is Canada, and they get to do whatever they feel like doing. They're completely independent of you guys, and we open up religious tolerance and freedom for them. You go, well, why? Because they like Catholicism in England? Have they been having problems with Quebec? You go, no. They just wanted to say we can do anything we want. Both the colonists and, and parliament wrote about this, basically saying, we can control every part of American life whenever we feel like it, get over it. It's still no representation. It's still no representation, because how dare you even ask for that. And so, America just got chopped into a third of its, of its size, because these guys, I and mean, there's very little people living up here anyway, that's not the point. You have all this territory, you go, nope, now all you've got is this, just these 13 colonies down here. And America sits there and goes, what is your problem? So the angry colonists convened the first Continental Congress in September of 1774. Like, we got to figure this out. They made use of a, of a cartoon that Ben Franklin printed back in 1754 saying, we have to come together or else we're going to die. They're going to chop us to shreds. And they declared a boycott on all British goods. We are not importing anything. We'll get it all from the Dutch. Fine. We'll make it ourselves. And they sent word to England saying, okay, and if you don't lift the intolerable acts in the span of a year, we're going to refuse to export anything to England either. We will divorce ourselves from England economically. Is that what you want? These are immoral, and you know they're immoral. They wrote a really good case for it saying, this is against the Constitution of England. Don't do this. In February, Parliament declared that Massachusetts is in open rebellion. You are consciously saying, you are going to sever yourselves from England. So they ordered General Thomas Gage, remember George Washington's friend? Thomas Gage to bring order to the colony. Martial law, because you guys are in open rebellion. That's what we'll pick it up next week. Now, I understand that only some of this directly relates to church history, but I wanted you to understand the flow of how one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing. When we talk about how we rebelled against England. It's tempting to say, yeah, because they taxed our tea. Well, that seems kind of petty. Well, and if it were only that, yeah, it would be. But do you see how over over the span of decades, England has said, we're going to actually fund your army, give you an army, give you ammunition, give you weapons, give you forts, militarize you, and yet use you only for cannon fodder and take all of your stuff whenever we feel like it. That for decades, America has said, No, 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 that's not fair. And increasingly, England has said, I don't care. Now, when I say England, I mean Parliament. George III, not necessarily behind all of this, any of this, Though he was personally offended at the Boston Tea Party. He's like, they don't get to dictate terms to us. They don't get to do this. Remember, he's a constitutional guy. He's like, no, they've got a good point. I have been actually arguing against Parliament, saying what you guys are doing is unconstitutional. But what they did is illegal. They don't get to do that act any more than you guys get to do your acts. And since they are spitting in the face of British authority, then yes, I support sending Gage over to, to specifically uh, create order. Yes, they cannot send me a note telling me I have to I have to repeal acts of Parliament. They don't get to do that. Think we support the There's a good question about that. Um, some people would say Uh, Yes, because he was personally offended at the Boston Tea Party. Other people would say, well, we don't have any record of him specifically supporting the intolerable acts, but he didn't say no, and he did say yes, you need to smack him down for this. So, I don't know, I'd have to do more research to to figure out if there was any direct link one way or the other. Do something, let me know. But um, it is interesting when you come back to saying everybody at this point, they've crossed certain Rubicons, and it's a little late, it's going to be a fight that all the people who said, is there anything we can do to avoid war? George III going, you know, we've been doing things wrongly, all this kind of stuff, you go, no, the borderline. From here on out, it's revolution after revolution after revolution, industrial revolution, American revolution, French revolution. Starting here, at this point, everything changes and starts changing very, 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 very fast. How does the church respond to changes? Do we we flex with the changes and say we're going to hold our core values and apply them in different ways as our society changes? Do we change with society and start echoing the same changes because we want to look like the society we're in? Or do we drag our heels and say, everything's changing around me, but by golly, we're going to dress, we're going to act, we're going to sing like we did 50 years ago. Because things are changing, we have to be the bastions of tradition. Now, if this is what happened in 1770, what about 1970? You have a hippie long-hair movement. Does the church say, okay, we're going to start singing hippie long-hair songs and strumming guitars and do more worship choruses? Does the church say, hippie long hair people, that's unbiblical. People with long hair and beards, you'll never see that in the Bible. No, in the Bible they all had short hair and gray suits and skinny ties as God intended. And we are going to sing hymns because nobody should sing anything new. Or does the church say, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got people who are saying, enough with the artificiality. Let's be real with one another. Oh, we can totally use that. Let's not become hippies, but let's coast on what the culture is actually bringing to the table. Nowadays, we have the emergent church movement. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Where the emergent church says, oh, truth smooths what feels right? Go with that. Do we sit there and go, no, 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 I will pound truth into your skull. I will become the bastion of logic and rationality. Do we say, yeah, people like that kind of church listen to those kind of churches. Or do we find ourselves going, all right, wait, wait, wait. People are not as concerned about structure as they are about sincerity and genuineness. Wait, we can use that. Learn from history. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to see what came before and to see where we're at now and to see how they work together. I pray that you help us to think through why we do what we do. What do we hold on to? What do we let go of? What do we push for? What do we make use of? What do we allow ourselves to adapt in? Help us, Lord, to know how to respond to immigration, how to respond to homosexuality, how to respond to the emergent church, how to respond to legalization of drugs. How do we respond as a church? Where do we stand? Lord, help us never just to go with the flow. Help us never just to be bastions of tradition. Help us to be fortresses of truth in a world that does not understand the concept. And help us, Lord, to share that with the world in a way that they can hear. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Be glorified. Amen.